This audio is from the Axis Church and is a part of our sermon series, In the Shadows, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. For more information about Jesus or the Axis Vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. This morning... family and I got word that one of my really good friends died in a car accident yesterday. I was telling Jacob just how jealous I am of people who can take time to disappear and mourn and because of what's before us this morning I don't I don't get that but by God's grace I'm going to be pastored through the text this morning as I pray that you guys are uh, his kids go to school with our kids our family spent hours together yesterday Pray for his son. I'm coaching. I, I coach the the boys' basketball team um, at my kid's school. His son was trying out for the team. And part of the reason why he was going to make the team is not because his dad's my friend, but because of just how his dad affects the game through being such a passionate fan. His name is Taylor, the 13-year-old boy. He's at Vanderbilt, punctured lung, um, broken arm, uh, surgery on his arm, uh, some issues with his neck and spine. Um, His wife, uh, Kelly's wife, Laura, is uh, who Emily Seal worked for for a while. She's a lawyer in Hendersonville in Davidson County. Um, he's got two little girls who think that he's awesome. Just, just a lot. Usually I don't have to pray for a text uh, to matter to me. Usually as I study it, it matters. But this week in particular, it's something I've been praying. I even mentioned it to some of the Axis men yesterday. I just pray that this text really matters to me because I want it to matter when I preach. I want the text to affect me and not just me just tell it to y'all and hope it affects you. But I want to speak from where it hurts and heals, you know. Um, and so, through God's mysterious providence, this morning this text matters. (laughs) 
the strange gift through things like this is, I don't know if it works this way for you, but for me, it, these things, as I experienced it this morning, it's very easy to, to see the difference between silly and significant when suffering hits. It's easy, very easy, to realize that as great as what the Cubs are doing, that it doesn't matter. There's so many things I want to talk about with my friends, football, baseball, tryouts, you know, the team I'm coaching. None of that, none of that matters in comparison to the Word of God and how God loves us and what He's done for us. Kelly was a Christian, so my my morning isn't without hope. Um, still hurts. There was there's great hope that comes from the cross, but the cross still hurt. Hurt the heart of God. Hurt Jesus. But there's just heightened sensitivity this morning to, to consider that we have a Redeemer. Even in the manuscript, you know, over these weeks of working through the series, we talk about shadows in the Old Testament and how the Old Testament points to the Redeemer who's going to come make all things right again. You've heard me say that for weeks now. But this morning, that, that term Redeemer, to make all things right again is... just feel it in a, in a new way this morning, you know? I just can't wait. Can't wait for all things to be made right again, for all things broken to be permanently restored. Christ is who's changed the hopelessness that we have to hope that this is true. And, I mean, Kelly is with Jesus, and that's an incredible hope. I mean, he was, I was bad in my self-righteousness growing up, but this guy was just a rebel. He was a fighter. He was a brawler. He was cruel. He was a thief. He was mean. And that's not who Kelly is anymore. He's been a different man since he's been a Christian. So as, as I preach this text, I pray that I pray that you're encouraged by it and that you would offer me grace as I'm still trying to process something that I just learned about just a couple hours ago. Um, I'm very excited to preach this text. I'm very excited. And I pray that if you're a Christian, I pray that you'll realize that the true hope that we have in Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I pray that you believe Jesus and become a Christian and realize the hope that you have because of what Jesus has done for you.
and how God loves you. Last week, you know, we were going through the children of Israel held in this tight bondage, tight bondage by the the iron furnace of Egypt, holding the Israelites as slaves. Such cruelty over the Israelites under the charge of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Just cruel, just brutal. Brutal suffering. Death. For the children of Israel to consider a promised land, things that were promised to Abraham, to consider these things was almost cruel to bring up. Very cruel to even talk about because of the present reality of their suffering. It was a joke, a cruel joke to think about things that God spoke to Abraham while they're in the midst of this suffering. Being captives in that foreign land of Egypt seems so very far away from becoming a great nation to having a promised land, to experience, to experiencing God's blessing as they're under such death and sickness and hard labor. So this morning we're going to be looking at Passover because that was a, 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 an event that changed things for the children of Israel. And it even speaks, the timing of Passover even speaks to the suffering that they had to endure because they... They sacrificed, as we'll learn, lambs at midnight. And it's believed that's because that's the only time that they could finally do anything outside of work because of the demand on their physical labor. They literally worked until midnight, day after day, in oppression and slavery. In Exodus 2, we looked at this last week, it says during those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue came up to God. That's an encouragement. God heard their cry for rescue. He heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Then God brings... Moses, baby Moses, during this time, the cruelty of Pharaoh had reached epic proportions. He, he ordered that all newborn boys be tossed in the Nile and killed because of the growing population of the Israelites under their, under their um, rule. He was afraid that they were going to grow too strong and too numerous and take over Egypt and fight against Egypt from within. And so he's putting a stop to their population growing. Well, Moses' mother hides him for his first three months of life. And then it became too difficult for her to keep her son, Moses, quiet. She was afraid for his life. So out of a radical gesture of desperation... She makes this basket and places Moses, this three-month-old three little child, 
in this basket, floats it down the river. By God's providence, unbelievable. Pharaoh's very daughter sees this basket, pulls it close, finds the child, adopts it. But get this, she needs someone to take care of the child. And so through a strange course of events, ends up getting Moses' own mother to come and take care of Moses under the watch and care of Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses is raised within Egyptian culture, essentially adopted by, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised experiencing the finest things that life had to offer. Well, then you fast forward 40 years as a grown man, aware of his past, very aware of his past, aware of his origins. He continues over the years to see this slavery and brutality and oppression build and accumulate until one day something happened that just pushed him over the edge. He saw an Israelite slave driver start beating, relentlessly beating one of the Hebrews. And Moses out of a fit of rage in reaction to this, just couldn't take it any longer, goes and kills this man with his own hands and buries him in the sand. Word begins to spread about what Moses did. So he flees. He runs to an area, a village called Midian. And while he's there, he, take, he takes a job as being a shepherd. And, and he works for a man named Jethro. He ends up marrying Jethro's daughter. After 40 years as a shepherd, God miraculously, in some ways even mysteriously, shows up in this burning bush moment where he tells Moses, Moses, you're going to go get my, my people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and you're going to be the one that's going to take them into the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, the land that Isaac and Jacob have been looking forward to. You're going to be the one who's going to go back home to bring my children to their true home. He didn't want to, made up all sorts of excuses. But as the oppression grew and as Moses worked through some things with the Lord, he was determined that he would go. So he goes and he confronts Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, all I really know is that God has sent me to tell you to free the Israelites. They are his people. They don't belong to you. They need to leave. They need to go and they need to be able to worship and sacrifice to their God in their own land. He says, no way. Well, then God sends 10 plagues as a way of weakening the, the firm grasp that Pharaoh had on the, on the throat and the, the neck of the Israelites one by one, you would think that they would be weakening him, but it just made him all the more firm in his resistance to the things that God wanted to do with the Israelites. After each plague, he said, okay, you can take them, but then he changed his mind and got harder. He started with the plague of turning water into blood and killing off all the fish. Plague number two, millions of frogs all over Egypt. Plague number three, 
biting insects, mosquitoes, and lice. Plague number four, wild animals or flies, depending on your interpretation and understanding. But regardless, it was terrible. Plague number five, livestock disease. All the cattle, goats, sheep, horses, camels get a disease. Plague number six, boils break out all over everyone. Number seven, fiery hell comes down and consumes so much, and what was left was taken. And plague number eight, with the locust devouring anything that is green, just swarming in clouds of millions and billions of these locusts. Plague number nine was a strange and mysterious, a very odd darkness when it was supposed to be noon. The plagues come to an end with a dramatic announcement of the final plague that the firstborn son in Egypt, every firstborn son in Egypt will die. Exodus 12, 12, you'll see there in your copy of Scripture. God enters Egypt in judgment. For I... Not insects, not boils, not diseases, not darkness. I'm coming to Egypt. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So here, even the Hebrew children were subject to this judgment. God came in justice. God came in judgment that night, but he passes over in peace when he saw the blood. And here's what I mean by this. Look down at Exodus 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God brings his people to himself through redemption, through the blood of the Passover lamb. So God remains just as judge, but he also remains gracious as he offers a way of deliverance for his people. You see, here's what would happen with the lamb. Every man in the home would take a, a lamb, a perfect lamb, without spot, without blemish, without any broken bones, and he would slaughter it. He would cook it, and the family would, would eat it. He would serve it to his family. And then in faith, the blood that was shed by that animal and the slaughtering of it would be plastered across the doorpost of their homes to protect the family from the coming judgment. Where the lamb's blood was shed, the firstborns were saved and spared. You see, the blood satisfies the justice of God for those who have faith in its protection from judgment. This Passover lamb provides for us a very clear picture of substitution where something took someone's place and also propitiation 
a substitute absorbing the punishment that was deserved for someone else. Propitiation is, um, is a term uh, that refers to something like a sponge that absorbs and uh, Christ being this Passover lamb, this lamb being a picture of the Christ, the act of death of the lamb and the act of the death of Christ. He was there absorbing that wrath, that animal, that Savior, taking the place and absorbing the punishment that those in the homes deserved. You see, in every home there was judgment without exception. Every home of every Hebrew and every home of every Egyptian. Every home there was judgment. In every home there was death. Every home. In the Egyptian homes, the oldest son died. In the Israelite homes, the slaughtered lamb died. Judgment and death in every home. For the faithful Israelites, the ones who by faith did this act, the judgment of God had fallen on a substitute. And by participating here in the Passover, the Israelites, they set themselves apart as holy to the Lord for His purposes, to be His people. The sacrifice of the animal atoned for the sin of the people. The blood smeared on the door frames purified those within the home. And the eating of the sacrificial meat consecrated those who consumed it. By participating in Passover, this ritual, the people sanctified themselves as a nation, as a people holy to God dedicating themselves to him, believing in him. So Pharaoh finally releases the Israelite in the middle of the night. They're free to leave Egypt. The bondage to slavery is over. At last, after 430 years, 430 years, they were finally able to leave Egypt by the mighty acts and wonders of God. The great movement, the exodus, was now underway. Their prayers had been answered. God heard and God responded. God acted. He took action on behalf of his people. Today, we see the Passover lamb as a shadow of Christ. The slaughtered lamb is a beautiful and very clear picture of Jesus, our perfect representative and our sufficient substitute. You may remember in John chapter 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he labels him, he names him. He sees Jesus, and time and time again, John saw Jesus, and he would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. He's referring to Christ being the Passover Lamb, the greater Passover Lamb, the one who the previous Passover Lamb and the rituals of the Passover moments was pointing towards. It's like Paul says later, Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. It's very clear. 
what God's purpose and intent was in setting up this Passover event so that it would be a a clear way of understanding what Jesus Christ was accomplishing for his people. Just as that lamb was for your deliverance, so is the greater lamb for your deliverance. Such precision and detail in God's providence as Jesus died on Passover night. That's not an accident for the calendar to just haphazardly work out this way. God was down to even the hour and the evening of when his son, the Lamb of God, would die for the sins of the world. And so it's Jesus who has been given to us for the greater Passover lamb, the once and for all sacrifice. Jesus taking care of all that was needed for those who would believe, taking care of it all in full. Be reminded of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever would believe in him would not die but would live forever. He gave his son so that you can live The lamb was given so that the firstborn could live. Jesus is the greater lamb. God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. And I am so glad. Even this very morning. I'm glad that there is hope because of what Christ has accomplished for us. You see, our sin holds us in bondage. Our sin has destroyed us and has destroyed our relationship with God, our creator, our ultimate father. Our sin isolates us from God, separated from God, without hope of ever experiencing God as personal, without fear, as friend, our maker, understanding him, knowing him, him knowing us, us being encouraged by him. Our sin has destroyed any of that from happening. In fact, we we learn in scripture that we're dead. We're isolated and dead. We're completely hopeless to ever be in relationship with the one that we desire to be in relationship more than anything else. And you might think, well, that's not true for me. My friends, scripture teaches that it is within the heart of every person to desire, to crave more than anything else, this restored relationship with your maker. Now it manifests its way in a thousand different ways every given year of of how we try to satisfy that longing with other things, with busy, with pride, with stuff, activities, more, bigger, faster, There's something in us that wants to experience a relationship with something truly epic and grand that was placed there by your creator. And it can only be fulfilled and satisfied by your creator. In every one of us, there's this God-shaped hole and only God can satisfy. And sin has ruined us from ever being satisfied. But God changed that. God died so that you could live. You see, God provides us sinners with a sufficient Passover lamb that would die, taking the sinner's punishment so that we could live, so that we could live. 
the son, Jesus Christ, taking care of this on the cross for us. The death, his death, the shedding of his blood is what frees us from sin and death. It's what gives us hope for men like Kelly. When my time comes, when your time comes, it's what gives us hope. You see, it's on the cross where Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that was towards us and our sin. And it's where he gives us his righteousness. Results in our justification, being made right in the eyes of God. Theologians consider this the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. His righteousness for our sin. He takes what he doesn't deserve, what we deserve, and he gives us what we don't deserve and what he deserves. Magnificent act of grace. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And he is the one who inaugurated and brought about the newer and greater exodus, leading us out of death one day into the true and better promised land, paradise, heaven. Later in Revelation 5, John sees Jesus in heaven. John sees Jesus in heaven. He says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It had looked like it had been killed, but he's now standing with new life. And, and Christians, if you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. If you're a Christian, we're part of this crowd that's around Christ, the lamb who appeared that he had been slain, and we sing out a song. We declare praises. We say, worthy are you, for by your blood, by your blood, just like the blood of the Passover lamb in the Old Testament in Egypt, by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made us a kingdom. You're going to say that. If you're a Christian, you're going to sing these words. John heard you singing these words and wrote them down as he had a future vision of things to come. And then we sang, we sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it's a quote in the book of Revelation chapter five, quoting you, Christian. You're going to be seeing this one day in a real place called heaven. All because of Jesus. All because of the father's love for you. All because of the spirit's activity and changing out your dead heart for a new heart. All of this by grace through faith. A closing thought I have for us is, you know, every, every person will be judged. Every one of us in this room will be judged. You see, on Passover night, there was no escaping death. Just as you have no substitute on that final judgment day, if you do not have that substitute, then there will be death. You see, we're all sinners in deserving the punishment of death. We're sinners by birth and by choice. And the Bible teaches that our sins that are against others and that are against us aren't ultimately against others and against us. Ultimately, our sins, all of our sins are against the holy creator God as they're all in rebellion, in defiance against our creator. 
Romans 3.23 tells us all of sin. Romans 6.23 tells us clearly the price of that sin is death. So God remaining just, he must punish sin. So all sin is punished. All sin is punished. It's either punished through hell. It's punished through separation from all that is good, from God himself in eternal separation from him in punishment. Or our sin and our punishment goes out on Christ on the cross. And this is why Christians celebrate Jesus, because of how he has saved us from what we deserve. But notice that there's no, in this requirement, that there was no mention about the morals of the firstborn son in the homes. Back in the Old Testament, in in Egypt, there was no, like, the blood will work if the son has been a good boy. It doesn't say that the blood on the doorpost will work if he's he's been all right, or actually he hasn't been as good, so the blood won't really matter. We're not told whether the boys in the homes were criminals or crooks. You see, the life of the firstborn son in the homes of the Hebrews, his life didn't hang on his behavior. It didn't hang on how good he was or how bad he was. His life depended upon the blood on the doorpost. That tells me that anyone can get in on what God is doing through Christ. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, and his death on the cross provided the blood for the sprinkling of the doorpost of your hearts so that when judgment passes, you're clean and you're safe. You sleep all night long. There's no crying in your home. There's no need for anxiety or fear. You sleep safe and sound because of what Christ has done. So it's not a matter of whether we've been good or not so good or whether we've even been criminal. The blood of Jesus is what matters. So no one has been good enough to earn their salvation and no one's been too bad to disqualify them from salvation. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on us. It depends entirely upon the grace of God, the sufficiency of Christ, the blood of Jesus, and faith in his finished work. This is why we owe him our love and our thanks. This is why we worship him, because he literally took care of it all. So why does this matter? That's the question that I've been struggling up until this morning, struggling on why this matters. I get it theologically, but personally being so involved in scripture and in preaching, often I know that I can lose focus of the, the, the weight of why this really matters. So I can't imagine what it's like to not have to get up and talk about how it matters every Sunday. You have normal jobs, you have different lives than I have. So certainly you can drift as I drift to where it doesn't matter. This matters to me today. This matters to me because I'm a sinful man, but I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. So I have no guilt in life and I have no fear in death. My grandfather, 87 years old, he's redeemed by the blood of the lamb. He has no guilt in life. He has no fear in death. So in the present, no guilt, free from fear, facing death, 
no guilt, free from fear. Bring it on. Why does this matter? Because my friend Kelly, 35 years old, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, no guilt in life, no fear in death. His family mourns, but his family doesn't mourn as those who have no hope. But is this your hope? Has your heart experienced the covering of Christ's blood atoning for you so that when death does come, it passes over you because it didn't pass over on Christ. He took it for you. Is this your story? I, I wish I could do something to convince you. I wish I could do something to convince you to see Jesus and what he's done. I wish I could do something to enter into your world, into your heart, and tell it that this matters. That's not my job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. I'm just supposed to tell you what Jesus has done and let the Holy Spirit do what only he can do. So if you want Christ, if you want this whole idea of the covering of your heart with the blood of Jesus, if you want to have no guilt in life, no fear in death, then ask the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do in your heart. You can't do it. Don't try to be good enough. That won't touch your heart. It, it might. It'll make it hardened. It'll make it self-righteous and proud. It'll change your heart, but not in the way that you want it to. So humbly ask the Holy Spirit to change and shape your heart. Ask Jesus to save you. Tell Jesus, say, Jesus, I want to be like the children of Israel. I want to be like one of those Hebrews who understands the significance of the blood on the doorpost. Would you put it on my heart? Would you forgive me? This matters, my friends. Each year, the Hebrews ate a Passover meal to remember what God had done. Well, we too, God's people, today, every Sunday that we gather together, we share a, a meal of sorts as we remember what Christ has done through communion. When we remember the bread that represents his body that he gave us as that sacrificial lamb. We remember the blood that he poured out for us as he bore our punishment there on the cross, shedding his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Scripture tells us that clearly. So we take this bread that represents his body and we place it in the juice or the wine that's symbolic of the blood that he shed for us. And much like those Hebrew families taking it and eating it, you're identifying that yes, I believe that the blood of the lamb is sufficient to save us. Even on this scary night of death, we believe that God has had, that God has taken provision for us, made provisions for us. So this meal, it would be silly for you to take it if you're not a Christian. It would mean nothing. This meal is for Christians. It's for you saying, I identify with what you're saying. I see Jesus as the Passover lamb for me. What he did changed me. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Do I believe it perfectly? I'm fighting to believe it. Do I struggle with doubts and fears? I'm, I'm fighting against those doubts. I'm praying against those fears. I'm not free from those. 
but I'm fighting to believe. That's what you say when you come and take this. Yes, it's finished. Yes, God's still doing a work in me. So Christians, let's come and celebrate that there's no mourning in our home over death of the firstborn. There's no mourning in our home, the death that anticipates us, even on a morning like today. Friends and family, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your prayers. Even this morning as I've been preaching, thank you. I pray that you've been encouraged. Thank you for bearing with me. I don't like making moments where they feel like it's more on me, and I, I don't like that, but it was inevitable. I just could not hold it together. I didn't want to be fake. I didn't want to try to put on a show, let you know where that emotion was coming from. So pray for the Frost family, and let's celebrate the Frost father is with Jesus. He really is. He really is. Do you have that hope? Think on these things. Thinking on these things is how you become a Christian, my friends. Pray through these things. Praying these things is what produces change in your heart through the power of God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your help. Thank you for your hope. Father, thank you for your radical love that you have shown forth to us. Even while we were sinners, you sent your son to die for us. Thank you for letting this matter to me, and I pray for so many others in the room this morning. Comfort the morning. Comfort those who are hurting. You promised to be near the brokenhearted. Lord, I know that there's been others in this room this week who've experienced similar tragedy. Lord, would, would you be near them, and would you allow these words to bring comfort and hope to their hearts as well? Lord, thank you for taking care of all that was needed. We celebrate you. We remember you and what you've done for us this morning. Thank you. We can't wait to, to be with you and see you face to face, to be part of that crowd shouting out just how worthy you are, the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power and praise and blessing. Worthy are you. And yet, by grace, you allow us to be co-heirs with that. <laughs> Thank you for this promise. God, do something special in our hearts. Can't wait to see you in Christ's name. Amen.